0: last wednesday night we we hunkered down on this topic of eternal rewards Uh, we spent 45 minutes together last week talking about eternal rewards talking uh, specifically about the judgment seat of the lord jesus christ where all believers will stand and give a reckoning for what we did with our lives Uh, I'll remind you that that appointment is not a judgment for our sin. Our sin has already been judged in Christ at Calvary. But that does not mean that we won't be evaluated, that we won't give an account. And the beauty of this judgment seat of Christ, this moment, this appointment that we all have is this, is that the Lord's delight is to reward us for every faithful thing we ever did for his glory. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and there is coming an appointment on god's calendar that only he knows the date of where jesus christ will meet with you the child of god individually and in in the midst of his glory he will give a full holy and accurate assessment of your life and for those things that were done under the glory of the lord there will be great reward now the question is this jeff what are we going to do with rewards in eternity? And I'm going to tell you, I don't know. Because we're not going to have any needs. We're going to be perfect. We're going to be in a perfect paradise. We're not going to be having to scramble to make things happen. I have no idea. Well, I have no clarity exactly on what those rewards mean, but I do know this. The Lord Jesus Christ prioritized them when he was in his preaching ministry. He talked about rewards a lot. He motivated those early followers with a reminding that there are rewards to be earned for following him. So it was important to the Lord. Paul wrote about them. Peter wrote about them. James wrote about them. John wrote about them. This isn't a side issue in our Bible, and yet there's something in in kind of our 21st century mindset that says, well, isn't it a little shallow to be motivated by rewards? Isn't that presumptuous? Well, why did the Lord and all the apostles teach so strongly about it then? If it wasn't important, it wouldn't be all over the pages of the New Testament. So, tonight, my desire is to talk about uh, five distinct crowns that are mentioned. Rewards and crowns are often used interchangeably in the New Testament. When it speaks of crowns, it is in the context of you receiving a reward at the end of the age where you stand before the Lord. And there's not a single person in here that's born again through faith in Jesus Christ that doesn't have the possibility of receiving at least one, if not all five of these rewards. And so let's look at these tonight. We're going to be jumping around. And so my encouragement to you is to look at the notes that'll be up on the screen. And let's start with this first crown. It is called, and these are in no particular order, the crown of life. The two primary passages that reference the crown of life are James chapter number 1 and verse 12 and Revelation 2.10. Let's look at these verses first and let's read what the Scripture says. Blessed is the man, ladies don't feel left out, blessed is the Christian who remains steadfast under trial. For when he or she has stood the test, he or she will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who... Who love him. So James starts us off with that, and then let's hear the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus says this Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Jesus says, Be faithful unto the death and I will give you the crown of life. Okay, when we take James chapter 1, verse 12 and Revelation 2, 10, just these two verses alone, we find out that this crown of life is revealed in Scripture to be reserved for those people who have faithfully persevered under trials. It doesn't define all of the different types of trials. It doesn't compare a heavy trial with a, a less-than-heavy trial. It simply says this, The Lord Jesus is watching over our lives, And he is shepherding us, and he is fully aware when we are in a season of testing and trial. And for those who persevere through those valleys, through those trials, enduring those testings, retaining their integrity, retaining their faith, retaining their faithfulness, Jesus says, in the judgment you will be one who receives this crown of life. He said it to an entire church in Revelation 2.10. He's talking to the church of Smyrna there, and he's saying, you are about to undergo a fiery test. They were living, of course, in a time and an age where great persecution was coming on to the church. And Jesus did not promise them that they would never experience persecution. He did not promise them that they would not go through fiery trials. But what he did is he said this, as you pass through these fires, as you go through these testings, as you endure faithfully, I want you to know that I will be giving you a crown of life. This is very important because all of us can qualify for this. What do I mean? Every single one of you in here who's a follower of Jesus has gone through seasons where you know you are being stretched. You're being broken. You are enduring deprivation or loss or sorrow or heartbreak. It can come through so many different corridors. It can come through circumstantial issues. It can come through relational issues. It can come through financial issues. It can come through things like physical issues and suffering that you are beyond your control. And it tests you to the very core. It brings you to the place of repeated brokenness where you feel that there are days you cannot go on. You feel that you will not be able to make it. You are literally coming to the end of yourself. You don't have the answers that you crave. You're not feeling like the presence of God is anywhere near you. You are just simply going through something that threatens to swallow you. Oftentimes, when the crown of life is mentioned, and by the way, go back and read the former verses in James chapter 1. Those first series of verses in James 1 are talking about enduring the test, going through the trial patiently leaning on the lord with all that you have left and it is a it is a hybrid mixture of faith and surrender that that at, at the end of yourself you recognize i don't know how i can do this and it's in those moments where grace is infused just like we sang earlier and you find that that grace is sufficient that grace is enough and somehow in the midst of your refusal to quit your refusal to start mistrusting God, your refusal to respond in the flesh, but you just endure as the Holy Spirit empowers you. You come through that trial, and through every trial that we endure faithfully, I'm going to tell you, we leave that trial with increased intimacy, wisdom, and experience. We seem to get a little bit of reward here on earth when we go through a testing, but Jesus says, that's not enough, because I understood the weight you were dealing with. I understood the pain that you were feeling. I understood the attack of the enemy on your mind. I understood what the, what you were feeling in your body. I understood the heartbreak in your loss, and I watched you, and I never left you, and I stayed by you, and now, my child, you have come into the fullness of your inheritance, and the Lord Jesus, in this act of reward, gives you, places upon your head, the crown of life. My friend, I love this crown, and I started with it, Because there's not a single person on planet Earth who's decided to follow Jesus, has received him by faith. There's not a single one of us that doesn't qualify for this. And the beauty is this. I believe it's not just one crown. I believe that the Lord is so good and so gracious that every single trial you've ever gone through, that the Lord is more than willing and more than able to reward you for every single one of them. And he makes it a point to say, I watched, I noted, you came through, I never forgot, and I remembered. Some of you need to take courage in that tonight, that as you endure difficult trials, that they're not arbitrary, and you are not alone, but it is purifying your faith and bringing you into deeper intimacy with the Lord. And as you endure faithfully, and you will come through, we go through those valleys. As you go through that valley, you're going to meet with great reward from the Son of God himself. Let's talk about the second crown. This one is called imperishable crown or incorruptible crown. And the key verses for this are found in 1 Corinthians chapter number 9, verses 24 through 27. Let's just read this. This one is a little more intense. This one challenges us in different ways. Paul writes this to the church at Corinth, "'Don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize?' So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or crown, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one who is beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified." Now, that's 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. Let me give you another set of verses that Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 7, listen for the same kind of feel to what he writes to Timothy. Share, Timothy, in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And then again, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So what is this crown that is mentioned both in 2 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 9? What is the incorruptible crown? Well, did you pick up on the, the repeated emphasis that Paul talked about? He, he mentioned athletes in training. you got to remember there in Corinth, they had what was called the Isthmian Games. It was second only to the, the Olympic Games at that time. And there near Corinth, you would have these athletes. And so the athletic metaphor for Paul was always fresh on his mind. He compared to the Christian life to several different athletic um, uh, sports in, in his writings. Here he's talking about a runner. Um, a runner who wants to win the race, and in those days, only one person got the medal. And so Paul is uh, connecting the Christian life to running a race. You're not competing with other people. You're competing against yourself. And Paul says, I want you to win it, but if you're going to win it, you've got to be like those runners. You've got to discipline yourself. You, you've got to understand that this race is not won on the day of the race. It's run, it is won in all of the preparation and training before the day of the race. And so he talks about this issue of a physical runner having to physically discipline himself, deny himself, and train himself. That is part of what uh, constitutes the ability to receive this imperishable crown. But he also speaks um, about the boxing. He says, he, he gives this, this pugilistic metaphor. He says, I don't fight as one wildly swinging, just beating the air. Paul shows the Christian life as being a contest. And how many of you know that? That literally the Christian life is often portrayed as being in war. You're fighting a threefold enemy every day of your life. You're fighting the world that calls your name. No matter who you are, it calls you. The world is a seductress and it says, come to me, live for me, immerse yourself in me, taste of me, get addicted to me, get intoxicated to me. I am the world and you must have me. And then it's not only the world, it's your own flesh. How many of you know that, listen... Adam and Eve in a perfect paradise with absolute just bliss and and unbridled fellowship with the Lord. Adam and Eve, even in a perfect paradise, gave in to a temptation. It was the the lust of the eyes. It was in them. So you got the world, the flesh, and then you have this other enemy you got to fight. It's the devil and all of his demons. Listen, the Lord is not unsympathetic to the fact that you and I are in a fight. He's not up there hollering at us, saying, well, you ought to be doing better by now. The Father is very realistic, knowing that we are dust. And in this this earthen vessel, we have the Holy Spirit, and we are able to fight against, not flailing around beating the air, but we are fighting a very uh, precise and intense warfare. He says the Christian life is so much like that boxer. And so Paul says, I discipline myself, the incorruptible crown, is for those who are going all in for Jesus. You've got to know this. Olympic athletes don't win if they approach it casually. Nobody becomes an expert or the top of their game or the top of whatever it is they're giving their lives to without becoming singularly focused on that. The incorruptible crown is for those who discipline themselves, deny themselves. They literally approach part of the Christian life with a regimen in mind. They say, if I'm going to win, I'm going all in, but I can't play around. And so Paul is writing Timothy a little later, and he compares it to a military enlistment. I've not been in the military. Many of you have, but you know that you don't get to do what you want in basic training, right? You don't, they're not asking for suggestions. Your drill sergeant is not saying, what do you think we ought to do today? They tell you every single aspect of your life. They take you beyond your limits. They, they bring you to this place where you are literally operating just at a, a, a bare minimum because they have taken everything out of you, but you don't get to fuss and you don't get to fight and, and you're going to go through because the drill sergeant is making you into a soldier. And so it's the same way in the Christian life. And Paul says it to Timothy this way. He says, a soldier can't get entangled in civilian pursuits. And so if you want to be a civilian, you got to wait until you're discharged out of the army. You can't live in both worlds. And what Paul is saying here is those that want to win this incorruptible crown are those that, like a soldier and like an athlete, they're going all in. They're going to deny themselves, even lawful things, even things that other Christians may be able to, to 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 run with. But they say, "No, I don't want to do anything that interrupts my singular focus." On Jesus Christ. They view their lives as no longer being their own. They recognize they're bought with a price. They don't live according to their own whims or their own desires, but they discipline their hearts. They say they want to live by truth. They want to live according to the direction of the Holy Spirit. They want to live for the glory of God, and they understand that that removes the ability to live casually. Um, I don't ever want to be a legalist again, I spent the four, first five years, maybe four to five years of my Christian life as an ignorant, full-blown legalist. What a toxic combination, ignorance and arrogance. I mean, it was terrible, especially for a few people that were very close to me at that time. And so I never want to be a legalist again, but I want to tell you something. Discipline and sacrifice and self-denial do not necessarily equal legalism. Sometimes it just means I've got to put my flesh to death, and if I feed my flesh at all, it has the ability to take over. I never want to do that, so what do I do? Paul says, I beat my body unto submission. I bring myself to a place where I view this thing not as a casual stroll through the fields, but as an an intense battle that I want to come out on the other side winning. Why do we want to win? Because our life is a reflection of the one who offers us this crown. I want to stand before the Lord. You want to stand before the Lord. And you want to know that to the best of your ability, as you were finishing your race, you are one who went all in for Jesus. For those that do, the Lord says, you're going to receive an incorruptible crown. Why did he call it that? Because whoever won the boxing match, whoever won the race, whoever won the prize in the games, they would get a laurel wreath, and it would go upon their head, and that was the crown. It's not like these big gold bejeweled crowns that we think of. It was a garland, and it went around their head, and within just a few weeks, that wreath, that crown, would be perished. It would dissolve. It would literally die. And yet Jesus says, I'm going to give you a reward that never fades away, that never dims that never dissolves, that never perishes. You will have it for all of eternity. The third crown is the crown of righteousness. The primary verse for this is 2 Timothy chapter number 4, verse 8. Listen to what Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy. It's at the end of Paul's life. He is literally an old man about to be martyred for his testimony for Christ. And he writes these words to a young pastor named Timothy. He says, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth because of that there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me but to all also to all who love his appearing. Now, let's just pause there for a minute. How would you feel about a person that had the audacity to come up to you as a Christian and said I'm about to go home to be with the Lord, and let me tell you what reward I'm getting. Doesn't that feel weird? I'd be like, dude, you're a little presumptive. Paul said, I'm about to go home to be with the Lord, and I know one of the crowns I'm getting. It's not arrogant. It's the fact that he could look back on his life, and he knew in his heart, I did what I was called to do. I finished well. Not not all of us started well. I didn't start my life well. Um." I, you know I didn't get saved until I was in my 20s, and that was after a, t- a decade of just wasting my life. I didn't really begin well. But I want you to remember, it's not how you begin, it's how you finish. There are other people that began well, but aren't finishing too well. And so when Paul got to the end of his life, he said, I, I've run the w- race, I've kept the faith, I've finished my course with joy, and because of that, I know one of the crowns I'm getting. That is big, man. That lets me know that I don't have to be bashful and my hand, stuck my hands in my pockets and shuffle my feet and say, I don't know if I'm going to get any rewards. Listen, if you know you're living with Jesus and your life is about glorifying Jesus, then be bold in your anticipation that he said he would reward you, therefore he's going to. And this crown is called the crown of righteousness. Why? Because it's coming from the righteous judge. He, there is something connected in this crown. It is literally, it is, is connected to all of those who love is appearing. That's what Paul said. Paul said, I'm not the only one getting this crown, but it's all of those who love is appearing. What does that mean? It means all of those who are living for the return of Jesus to, to, for that moment where they, when they see him, they want to know, did my life please you? I believe my life pleased you. And so because of that, one of the things that in in studying the scriptures in the New Testament, most of the time where the second coming of Jesus Christ is mentioned in the New Testament, somewhere around that verse or those verses that mention the second coming, you're going to feel a uh, you're going to find a call to holy living, a call to righteous living. Let me give you a couple of examples. They'll be in the screen up here. Here's the first one. In 1 John chapter number 3, verses 2 and 3, beloved We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, second coming, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You follow that? Jesus is coming again, therefore we want to live holy lives. And those that are living that holy life, those that are anticipating the coming of the Lord, that love for him coming back is connected with this crown of righteousness. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Everybody who loves the thought of Jesus coming again Will live in a holy life. I didn't say perfect, but it just means this: we have perfect righteousness in our standing because of what Jesus has provided for us. But those who have perfect righteous standing will also be becoming righteous in our conduct, and will do it with an awareness. Hey, let me let me think about this. Remember the parable that Jesus gave about uh, the 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 thief coming and 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 being a part of the coming into the home to rob the home and he said this he won't do it if he knows the master is coming home he won't do it if he knows the master is home and then he goes on he talks about people riot in the day and they drink and they party and they get drunk and everything and they don't understand these servants don't understand that the master is on his way back home and so jesus is connecting the idea that people who don't live in the anticipation of the return of christ typically don't live holy lives But those that want to live for the second coming and the appearing of Jesus and long to see his face, those people are going to live with an awareness of, when I see him, I don't want to be living as if I didn't know him. You know, it's kind of a heavy thought. Um, I've had moments in my life I'm, I'm just going to confess this and at the risk of being judged, because I know none of you have any weaknesses or shortcomings, but you know, just for transparency's sake, I'll offer this up. But there have been times, let's just say Amy and I got sideways and we're not seeing eye to eye. And I know what the Bible tells me about loving my wife like Jesus loves the church. And, and for me not to be bitter against my wife, lest my prayers be hindered. Those are all, in. I know all the verses that tell the husband what to do with the wife, not because she told me, but because I want to know them. And so I know none of you have ever done this, but let's say I don't repent immediately after we have a disagreement. And maybe I said something, maybe I acted in a way that was not godly. I mean, Amy and I really don't fight, but there's been occasions where I know I'm not treating her well. And then I, I justify, I walk away, and i was like, well, she's wrong. You know, if she just get right, it'd be easy, and I'm going to wait for her to get right. And in those moments, let me tell you what, what, what I think of later. Sometimes it's in the moments like, man, I hope Jesus doesn't come back right now. <laughs> I am not ready in this moment to see him face to face. And listen. As much as I would like to tell you that I'm always seeking to be righteous because it's just the right thing to do, sometimes it's the awareness of, you know, the way I'm living in this moment is not fit for a child of God, and I don't want to meet Jesus in a season of, of my life like this. And so, Lord, not because I am holy, but actually because I'm confessing this unholy moment, I'm going to repent because I believe when you come again, you want me to be living a life that pleases you. And so, friends, listen, this is important. Um, I never know who I'm preaching to in the sense of what, what goes on in people's hearts. I'm not qualified to judge a motivation or to judge a heart. But I do recognize that in the Christian life, there can be seasons of intermittent sin. And if you're saved, the Holy Spirit will wear you out about that. And if you harden your heart, you're really playing with fire. You don't want to do that. And one of the things that will keep you fresh and yielded and pliable in the hand of the Lord, humbled and surrendered, is this awareness of, yes, He is the tender Savior. He is that beautiful Lamb of God, but He's also a holy, righteous judge coming again. And so when we have that hope of seeing Him, the Bible says everybody that loves His appearing, that they are going to purify themselves. Let me give you one other verse before moving on to the next to last crown. 2nd Peter chapter number 3 verses 10 11 and 12 listen to what peter says he's again talking about the second coming the day of the lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed since all of these things are thus to be dissolved what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of the which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? Did you see what Peter did? He just did what Paul did, or excuse me, what John did said this. He said, "This whole earth and everything in it is going to be reformatted." There's going to be a reboot of the entire cosmos. God is going to come in and bring a full resurrection and redemption to the entire cosmos where every trace of sin will be eradicated. And that includes him refashioning planet Earth. That day is described as a day of judgment and fire. It's not going to be pretty when that happens. So he's talking about the return of the righteous judge. And then Peter says, don't you think we ought to be holy and godly in light of this reality? It's just pretty intense man now you probably didn't want to come on a midweek service to hear about the earth being dissolved and you know fire coming on it but that's probably exactly when we need it when we're not thinking about it that's when we most need it why because jesus says if you'll live in anticipation of my coming and you'll love my coming and you will live as one who is aware that the Lord may return whenever He chooses. That's going to breed a holy, righteous life in you. And Jesus says this He says, I'm going to reward it with a crown of righteousness. You can receive that reward. You can receive, it doesn't matter what you've done up to this very moment in your life, you can in this moment repent rededicate, get reborn, whatever you need to. And from this moment forward, you can say, my life is no longer about me striving for the world or the things of the world. Jesus, I'm fixated and consumed with the reality that you're coming again. Lord, empower me to be righteous. Empower me to be be holy. You're worthy of receiving that. So let's go to the fourth of fifth crowns tonight. We got just enough time to finish both of these. The crown of glory. This is an interesting crown because on a superficial reading of 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 4, it almost seems like this is a crown that only pastors or elders can get, but I'm going to help you with this tonight because this is a crown every single one of us can receive if we make it a priority. 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 2 through 4. Peter is writing to elders. It is in the context of elders when he says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising the oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain. He says, Don't do it for money, but do it eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples unto the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, I want to say specifically in the context, Peter is talking to pastors and he's trying to, or elders, he's motivating them. When you hear the title, pastor or elder, I think one of the most helpful things to me over the years has been in a broad sense to to think shepherd. To think shepherd. One who comes alongside of those that need leading, And feeding and tending to. Now, obviously, as elders or pastors, those people have a high call and even a higher accountability when they're given authority to exercise in the church. But I don't believe that we can only apply this crown to a very small group of people that ever populate the kingdom, namely pastors and elders. So, who also might this be for? Let me give you, in the broadest sense, for people who are pouring themselves into others intentionally they are caring for and providing for and even in a certain sense leading and protecting others in the kingdom do you know who i think is going to get this reward and it probably very rarely enters into our minds i think selfless sacrificial moms i think that there is such a premium in the kingdom placed upon children and how many of you understand that children don't typically find themselves uh, following their pastors. When they're four years old, the pastor's just a crazy guy that screams. I mean, that's just that's as good as it gets. But moms, and I'm not leaving out dads, but when I'm thinking of this, I'm thinking of the shepherd hearts of so many moms that they, they reckon, and it's a thankless job when they're little. I don't have to tell you ladies that. You know that. You're, you're cha- nobody's ever changed the diaper of an 18-month-old, and that 18-month-old said, Mom, thank you so much. I know that's an unpleasant task. You're awesome. Thank you. It just doesn't work that way. They just fill up the next diaper. And then it's crying for food, and they make messes. I mean, you're cleaning up after them all the time, and then you've got to spend the first seven years of their life just preventing them from, you know, accidentally destroying themselves. And and you're feeding them and taking care of them. And, And oftentimes, as husbands, I know I was when my kids were small, I'm oblivious to all this stuff that goes on. And I want to tell you something, in those formative years, it is these moms that are, are pouring oftentimes the kingdom into these little children. And it sets the, the, the foundation for what maybe elders and pastors will build on later. But listen, sometimes it's not moms of little children, sometimes it's adults taking care of aged parents. When the parents and the roles have reversed and a parent is so old and that parent can't take care of themselves anymore and right maybe in the prime of their life at you know, 50, 40, 50, 60 years old an adult has to start giving care and shepherding that parent. Oftentimes it can be ministries in the kingdom where you are giving yourself to the less fortunate to the helpless, to the forgotten to the cast aside and what you're doing is you're saying I am going to, not for money, not for reputation not for fame, but for the sake of this one who needs pouring into i am going to give some of my life to them and i believe that in this broad application of this crown of glory that anybody who will say my mission my calling may never be to be on a stage it may never be to move the masses with my voice whether singing or teaching or preaching i I may never have my name make the bulletin but I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pour my life into those that have nobody else or not enough to pour into them. I'm going to be that person. Do you know how much like Jesus you are in that moment? When Jesus looked upon the crowds, he wasn't saying, look who's come to see me today. Look who's come to watch me work miracles. Look who's come to hear the wisdom of God. He looked upon a crowd one day and he says, they look like little sheep who don't have a shepherd. And his mission became to become the lamb to lay down his life for those sheep, that those sheep might become sons and daughters of God. I believe that the heartbeat of Jesus in pouring into others is all behind this offer of the crown of glory. Let me give you another one. Let's just let Jesus say it. This is after the resurrection. Peter had miserably failed Jesus by denying Jesus. And yet Jesus and mercy and grace, this is encouraging because it lets me know no matter how I've failed in the past, it's never too late because Jesus is always seeking to restore the fallen. And so he goes to fallen Peter and in John 21, verse 15, the Bible says, John writes this, when they had finished their breakfast, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Somebody's got to feed my sheep. Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. Peter, if you love me, I want you to take care of mine. Peter, if you love me, I want you to tend to them. Peter, I'm calling you into a life of shepherding. It's an amazing thought. We live in such a a sensationalized culture with superstars, from athletics to entertainment to politics, and unfortunately, even in the church. And Jesus is not looking for superstars. Jesus is not impressed, and especially in the church because a superstar mentality in the church is so antithetical to the gospel. You know what Jesus is impressed with, if I can say it that way? Jesus is not impressed with strutting superstars. He's impressed with serving shepherds that look at these that need to be tended to. I mean, this is the heart of God. God says, "I, I just want some of my people to spend their lives just taking care of others in my flock. And you know... It's not impressive in 21st century Western American culture. Servants, especially in the Greek culture, more are more akin to really slaves in the Roman culture and the Greek culture. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't novel or noble to be called a servant. And yet Jesus elevates servanthood and elevates shepherding. I want to encourage some of you that maybe haven't thought that your anonymous pouring into others that nobody notices... Maybe you feel like it's not valued. And maybe you made the mistake of thinking that it's just mundane work that doesn't make a difference. I want to just counter that by saying, you will know at the judgment seat of Christ just how much Jesus valued that. Don't stop doing it. When they don't thank you, don't stop doing it. When they don't understand the sacrifice, don't stop doing it. When sometimes the very person you're trying to feed bites the hand that you're trying to feed them with, don't stop doing it. Some of the most needy people in the world... Are those that are the most hurt people in the world? And hurt people have made um, great skill at hurting other people. Most of the people in our lives that are vindictive and obnoxious and hostile and abrasive, at the core of their being, they're actually very hurt. And what they don't respond to is us just continually pointing out how messed up they are. What will absolutely radicalize their life is when they find somebody that will tend to them and feed them and take care of them and love them in spite of how abrasive they are. And when you're doing that, you're being Jesus to them. And the Lord will never, ever forget it. So let's go down to the the last verse. The crown of rejoicing. All right, I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. I don't think that this is gonna be given out to the degree, not for this generation, that these other crowns were. Maybe I'm a cynic, but if I am, I'm an honest one, but let's look at the crown of rejoicing. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Paul says, is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. He's writing to the church at Thessalonica. Let's go to Philippians 4.1, also in your notes. Therefore, my brothers, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, my brothers whom I love and I long for, you're my joy, you're my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And let me give you one other one from Luke chapter 15. This doesn't mention the crown, but it does give the context for the rejoicing. Jesus is giving the parable, and he says this, When he comes home, he calls his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, watch this, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. What is this crown of rejoicing? My friends, the crown of rejoicing goes for those Christians who view themselves as rescuers in the appropriate sense. These are people who are completely committed to seeking salvation for the lost. Here's a big word for you that you know the word. It is the evangelists among us. Not the guy who runs a five-day revival meeting evangelist. He might be one too. But I'm talking about those. I'm raising one. My daughter, Alicia, who sang up here tonight, is meek and mild. And when we took her through a, a test, a spiritual gift test... Um, there were two things that she had that skyrocketed above the others the first one was amazing because I never saw it in this context but she just excels in the gift of evangelism she feels for people she wants people to be saved she loves people and the second one was shepherding so she doesn't only want to win them to Jesus she wants to walk with them after she wins them and listen this crown of rejoicing Paul said to the church at Thessalonica and the church at Philippi he's writing to Christians and he says y'all if he was southern he would say y'all are my crown you are my crown you are my rejoicing you are my joy paul saw these people that he had won to the lord he had established them in the faith he had helped them along in their journey of faith eventually he had to move on to other places but he saw those that he won to jesus as his crown and he called them that this crown of rejoicing is connected so deeply to the heart of god I can tell you, if there is an area at Newbridge Church that that needs an infusion of the wind of the Spirit in it, I'm looking at my friend Lorna out here right now. Lorna's an evangelist. I don't want to embarrass my sister, but she's an evangelist. You never see her by herself, and if she is by herself, she's looking for somebody that she can pour Jesus into. And God's just got his hand on our ministry. I think of those in our church that go out on Saturdays, and they go out, and they witness, and they share the gospel. And they do it in a, just a raw way, not an obnoxious way, but they are literally talking to strangers to facilitate a gospel conversation. And there have been people that have been saved. It doesn't always have to be like that. But let me tell you, you've got people in your life that will never come to this church. They'll never walk in the doors of Newbridge Church. But you are in their lives, and God will use that relationship. And if you will be prayerful and you will be sensitive, but you will also be clear, you will have opportunity to sow the gospel seed into their life. The beauty of it is this. You're never responsible for the decision they make. So much high-pressure evangelism tactics says, you got to close the deal, man. I remember being in evangelism seminars as just a, you know, a zealous Baptist. And I'd sit there and I'd just be salivating because we're getting trained on evangelism. It's like, don't forget to draw the net, brother. Draw the net. (laughs) You know, and I'm like, and so uh, when you leave, you've got like five verses. and, And you're armed with enough zeal in these five verses. And there would be times where I would be driving down the road. I remember driving down Boggs Road one time. And I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit or me, but I knew that I wanted to stop. And there's some dude who looked like an axe murderer, and he's walking the other way. And and I just I put the car in park, put it in neutral, put the parking brake on, get out of my car, run down Boggs Road with a track, a gospel track in my hand, and I thought I'm I'm going to share the gospel with him. And the dude did not want to talk to me. He did not want to get saved. But I kept him there an extra 10 minutes. He said, Jeff, what were you doing? I was drawing the net, Taman, Draw the net. Now that kind of evangelism. It's not prototypical Christian evangelism. I'm not saying that if the Holy Spirit tells you to do it, you, you don't have to. But what I'm saying is this. That's not really the way most evangelism is going to take place. It, it's going to take place with people that we work with, people that we're around. Uh, my boss led me to Jesus Christ. It took him two years, but he led me to Jesus Christ. And he did it daily. And um, and sometimes he was a little aggressive with me. But most of the time he was just consistent and he loved me. And... Um, some of us think, well, we've got to be Bible scholars and we've got to know 150 verses and we've got to have our, our soteriology in line and we've got to have our eschatology in line and we've got to have all of our ologies. Come on. The early church didn't even have a New Testament. They were living it. They didn't have biblical education. Most of them, were, they couldn't read. They, they, were, they were impoverished. They were poor. They were not high in society. They were, they were really kind of the castaways of their culture. And yet they were motivated and moving in love. They were compelled by the Holy Spirit. And they had a message that they knew if somebody believes it, it'll not only seal their eternity, but it'll change their life before they enter into eternity. And they loved them. And so when we can live with that kind of intentionality and just being aware of our relationships. I promise you this. You don't have to pray for more opportunities. You just need to pray to be more aware of the opportunities you already have. And so when we are aware of our opportunities and we really care about somebody, it brings a natural flow to our engagement with them about the gospel. And I promise you this. They may not receive your words initially, but they will not be able to ignore your love. And when your love is consistent and you have regular interaction with them, you just got to believe that God's going to drop their guard at some point and there's going to come a day. For me, it was August 4th, 1994. Scott Johnson witnessed to me for two years and I kept lying to him, telling him I'm going to go to church with him. And on that day, he was coming into work. I was leaving. I worked night shift. He worked day shift. And I saw him. I said, Scott, I am going to go to church with you this Sunday. And he had a Bible with him. And he literally just took his Bible and slammed it down on the desk. And he just looked at me and goes, Jeff, you don't need to go to church. You need to go home right now, fall on your face, and ask Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life. And you need to do it today. And he picked up his Bible and he went to work. And I walked out to my truck. I'm telling you, the fear of God hit me. I'd never felt it before, and I got my little Isuzu Lowrider pickup truck, and I had to drive a mile and a half to 2100 Sweetwater Road, apartment 112. I put the key in the door. I closed the door behind me, locked the deadbolt. I went into my bedroom, fell on my face, and I told God, I have ruined and wasted my life, but that preacher told me, if I gave it to you, you'd forgive me, and I released my life to Jesus Christ, and he changed me, and I've never been the same since. Now listen, Scott Johnson, if he never did another thing on planet Earth will get this crown of rejoicing for just what he did for me. Friends, you're not immune from that. You can do the exact same thing. If it takes two years, it's worth it. If it takes 10 years, it's worth it. If it takes a series of rejections, and they may mock you, they they may laugh at you, they may not not, uh, honor what you say, but if your motivation is love for them, then God's going to bless that, and in the end, Jesus is going to reward it five crowns every single one of them is available to every single one of us let's live intentionally and don't be afraid to be motivated by reward because jesus highlighted it he often motivated us with reward and then don't be afraid to say yes i've seen what the lord has done in my life When I get to the end of my life, if I am finishing faithfully, I will have rewards because of the grace of God in my life and how I responded to it. I lived for the glory of Jesus. Amen?